Amen. Our reading from God's Holy Word comes from the letter of Galatians, Galatians chapter 1, beginning in verse 6 and extending to verse 12. Paul writes, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers... That the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Before we pray together and consider these few verses from the Apostle Paul, I want to simply note we'll only look at a few of these verses from even the ones that we read today. One of the beautiful things about the letter of Galatians is that it repeats itself and lets us circle back over a number of different themes and topics, which gives us the time to look at a variety of things from several different angles. And so today I want to focus mostly just on verses 6 through 7 and 8, just in that little section primarily. But I wanted to kind of give you a larger context for where it is that the Lord is going to take us. I want you to also just note before we pray and jump in the strength of the Apostle Paul's language here. You won't find stronger words anywhere in the Bible, but especially from the letter of the Apostle Pen, the Apostle Paul's pen, than this right here. This language of shocked and astonished, this language of let him be accursed, this language that, well, you won't see anywhere else at quite this level. And it deserves some reflection. That's why we're going to start talking about it today. We're going to continue talking about it next week as we move towards the end of chapter one, doing a bit of a larger reading as the apostle Paul will take us a bit through his story. But I want you to see that Paul is speaking to us with a clarity and a severity all at the same time. He's telling us something very specific that he wants us to hear, but he's speaking it in a tone that's meant to rattle our cages and even puts himself under the nature of the stricture 
that he advances in this particular passage because he's so committed to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that he's willing to say something like, let anyone who would distort this gospel, anyone who would preach a different gospel, anyone who would say something that's not this gospel and call it by that name, let that person be accursed. We could translate that, let him be condemned. It's language of eternal perdition. That's a remarkable statement from the Apostle Paul, and it's one that should shock us, it's one that should arrest us. That's the goal of Paul's writing, and it most certainly did for the church at Galatia as they were receiving this letter from the Apostle Paul. You can tell by the way in which he speaks in this section of the letter, too, that he wants this church at Galatia to know this is not, a, this is not from him. We said this last week, that he's coming as an apostle, a a representative, a sent one from Christ himself. When he speaks, he speaks the very word of God. We just read God's word. It wasn't the word of man. It wasn't in a perspective or an opinion or a particular angle on things. It was the truth of the matter. It was the very word of God. And the Apostle Paul, as he speaks to the church at Galatia, wants them to know, listen, I'm not catering to please man here. That's going to be clear in the way I write, because I'm not going to make you very happy all the time about things that I've said. But I say hard things to you, my children in the faith, because I love you. And I don't want to see you destroyed by believing a different gospel. That's the Apostle Paul's heart set as he's writing this letter of Galatians. And so as we turn our attention to it, We're going to look a little more at that next week as he will unpack his story and we'll see even more of what it is that he's after in speaking the way that he is. But I want want that to kind of settle on you as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, give us the kind of seriousness and sobriety that's appropriate to the nature of the writing that God has given to us through Paul in this moment in the letter of Galatians. Don't approach it flippantly, but approach it For what it really is, the very word of God, and in which a message where eternity hangs in the balance. So with that on our hearts, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help and blessing. Father in heaven, we are humbled by the fact that you are God who is patient with persons such as us who are so forgetful, who wander away from the truth, who can't keep before our mind's eye the things that we know and profess to be true, but indeed wind up believing distorted lies and calling them gospel truth. Lord, you know that that's true even of some of us here in this room right now. You know that that's been true of all of us at some time and place in our history and in our past. We need the alignment that only your Holy Spirit can come and to give to us to put the straight edge of the gospel next to our soul and not try to bend the gospel to our soul's proclivity, but have our souls bent to the gospel standard. So straighten us up. As you put us next to the gospel in these moments together. And let 
your Holy Spirit with great power and with great strength speak into our lives now and bring to us the renewal of your grace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it was at the ripe young age of 17 that the young Robert Robinson had the privilege of hearing the great preacher George Whitfield. He heard Whitfield preach Matthew chapter 3, verse 7 O generation of vipers. Who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? One of Jesus' most stirring verses that we find in the gospel. Robert Robinson, hearing that message from George Whitfield, referred to the experience of that sermon from that great preacher as a haunting blessing. A message that would indeed overshadow him for three full years until he was converted at the age of 20. Shortly thereafter, Robinson became a Methodist minister. A Methodist minister of the Calvinist type. He was quite well received as a preacher of the gospel. He wrote a number of books and hymns that enjoyed acclaim in his own day. But Robinson was a restless soul. Through a series of events, he eventually moved from his Methodist and Calvinistic convictions to becoming a Baptist. There he served for a while as a minister, but then became restless again. Near the end of his life, he began to question some of the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith and flirted with and may have eventually committed himself to, the evidence of the record is mixed, what we would today call the Unitarian Church. A church that denies the Trinity. A church that denies the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. A church that denies the message of the gospel as traditionally given in the scriptures by God. It's sometimes told of Robert Robinson that near the end of his life he was on a stagecoach. And there was a lady on that stagecoach who was humming this tune. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. It's alleged, though it can't be confirmed, that the lady asked Robinson what he thought of the hymn that she was humming. And he responded, Madame... I am the poor and unhappy man who wrote that hymn many years ago. And I would give a thousand worlds, if I had them, to enjoy the feelings that I had then. You may not have known that about one of your favorite hymns. That Robert Robinson, yes, the hymn that we just sang, Come Thou Fount, its very author who wrote these words, Let that grace now like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave, 
the God I love would himself, at least under suspicion in history, leave the very God of which he wrote. In the passage that's before us, we have a church. A church who is wandering from the Lord. A church that is on the verge of leaving the God that they love. The word that the Apostle Paul uses is the word desertion. I am astonished that you are deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. We want to ask the question as we approach this text today, what does it mean to desert God? Or more personally, how can we know if we are deserting God even today? And if we are deserting God, what is it that can be done about it? Is there a way in which we could be restored? What would it mean to be retrieved and to be brought back into communion with the one in whom by his grace, has spoken to us and preached to us the gospel, yes, even God himself. The book of Galatians is Paul's rescue operation for a wandering church. It's his rescue and retrieval plan for deserting disciples of Christ. If when we sing, come thou fount, and you get to those lines, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, and you find yourself singing those lines with a manner of earnestness because of the wonderingness of your soul, then Galatians is written for you. Which is to say it's written for every single one of us in this room because we feel that way when we sing that song. And we want to be sure that at the end of our days, we are not, by God's grace, under a cloud of suspicion like the author of that hymn, Robert Robinson. That by God's grace, there would be manifest evidence that we are a people who have held tight to Christ, knowing that he has held even tighter to us. I'm going to look at what it means to desert with you. Desertion, what is it? How does it happen? And what can we do about it? What is it? How does it happen? And what can we do about it? We're going to start with what is it? The Apostle Paul, it's, I think fair to say, didn't see this coming. He wouldn't have guessed that this church at Galatia would be the one that he would probably have to run after as a lost sheep that was dangling on the edge of a cliff. When you read of Luke's account of Paul's ministry in Galatia in Acts chapter 13, you're stunned by the eagerness and the commitment of a people who embraced Christ in the midst of tremendous turmoil. I want you to just listen a little bit to how Luke recounts what Paul's ministry was like and the response of that ministry in the variety of cities there in Galatia, Antioch and Iconium and Derby and Lystra. Listen to what he says. Acts 13 verse 44. The next Sabbath, this is Paul going out, the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. 
And after hearing it, verse 48, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life were believed, and the word of the Lord spread throughout the entirety of the region. An amazing testimony of the churches that Paul is writing to here in Galatia. In Acts chapter 14, Paul has made his way across southern Galatia, hitting each of those towns. He's just preached in Lystra and was actually stoned in Lystra. And as he's now moving his way back, now he's almost reversing the trek of the missionary journey. He goes back to each of the towns that he's already established churches in. And we're told this, he returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. And here's what he did, making a second pass through these cities. He was strengthening the souls of the disciples, those who were followers of Christ there. He was encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when he had appointed elders for each church, with prayer and with fasting, he committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And then we read about Paul going on to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. That, that's the churches, that's the testimony of the churches that we're talking about here in the book of Acts. And so if you have in the back of your mind these half-committed, fledgling people who clearly didn't really get the gospel... It was in the midst of remarkable tribulation from external forces that would have kept them from actually wanting to embrace the gospel that they did through the power of the Holy Spirit and did so with tremendous eagerness and commitment. And in such a short time, notice what he says in verse 6, so quickly you are deserting. In such a short time, these believers in the Lord Jesus Christ begin to desert the God that they profess to love. You can hear the shock in the Apostle Paul's voice. A shock that's mixed with confusion, with anger and dismay. A grief-stricken language of fatherly concern. He's given birth to these churches in Galatia. He knows the names and the faces of those who are likely wandering from the faith. And it's no small matter. Because he uses this word desert. This word desert, it's not merely to to sort of drift from or to wonder, it's, it's to disavow the commitments that one has made. It's used most often for military desertion. One who has committed fealty to a particular nation and then has become, as it were, a Benedict Arnold, a spiritual turncoat. This is someone who has made vows, has raised their right hand, said they would do these things, and then turned... And deserted the commitment that they once made. Paul's using extremely strong language here. Language that would have resonated with the ears of the church there in Galatia. And so the situation is dire. But I want you to know it's not hopeless. Why else would Paul be writing a letter to them if it was hopeless? He wouldn't be taking the time and the energy to do that if it weren't. But I want you to see that he actually, he actually puts it in the grammar of the passage. In verse 6, he says, using a continuous present verb, it could be translated this way, I am astonished, here's how we translate it, you are deserting him, but it could be translated, you are in the process of deserting him who called you in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. This desertion is not yet complete. 
They've begun to make a path of desertion, but they're not solidified in it. They've not yet completely given themselves over to it. He uses the language here in the passage of turning to. You're in the midst of transitioning from one thing to the next. You know, that's how growth happens, but it's also how drift happens. When we grow in anything, whether it's a particular field of study, we always are turning towards it slowly. We're coming into new knowledge of it. And when we come into new knowledge, what's one of the very first things that happens when we come into some new knowledge of something? We're usually kind of confused about it. You know, confusion is a part of growth. That's why you sit in classes and the teacher teaches and she says it one time and she says it a second time and you go, I don't, I don't, I don't have any idea what you're talking about when you say, you know, X times Y equals whatever. And then she comes over and she shows it to you and you're confused and you're looking over and then what happens? And then all of a sudden you go, aha, confusion is a part of the process of growth. But confusion is also a part of the drift that moves us often towards error. What we see here at the church at Galatia is they are in the midst of drifting. It's a turning that is not fully committed to yet, but it's beginning to be swayed by or wooed towards that which he refers to as a different gospel. That's not of the likeness or the quality. In fact, the word that he uses there is a word, it's why some of our translators translate it, you are turning towards another gospel. It's a unique word in the Greek, but it doesn't mean another as in of the same kind, but it means another of a different kind. Let me use an example. The waitress comes to you and says, hey, would you like another Coke? Yes, I would like another Coke. I would like another drink of the same kind. But she says, would you like to try something different? Yes, I'd like to try another quality of something. This time I'm going with Dr. Pepper. He's using that quality here. He's saying you're turning to a qualitatively different gospel, not a gospel of the same kind. And so they're in the midst of making a theological transition. They're in the process of this, and he is saying you're deserting the one who has called you into his grace. So the question is, if this... that's. If this is what desertion is, if it's actually leaving the God who has called you, and it's actually turning to something that is entirely different, how does that happen? How does that happen? What happens in increments, in terms of the various movements of our soul being drawn and wooed, in terms of our own lives, but there's actually something that Paul tells us here that's very specific. He tells us how it happens. Listen to what he says. I am astonished that you are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Paul here is saying that we desert God when we begin believing in a distorted gospel that is not of the same quality or kind as the gospel that he'd received, the gospel of the revelation of Jesus Christ. We might say it this way. We begin to desert God the moment where we begin to be doctrinally distorted in our belief of the gospel. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. To distort means to twist something to the point that it is an entirely different thing. 
It means to pervert. The false teachers in Galatia had come in and they had preached a message that was so distorted, it was so perverted, that the very essence of the gospel itself was undermined. So much so that the Apostle Paul, in knowing and hearing their teaching, says there's no way we can even qualify it under the category of gospel. This means it's not a secondary or peripheral or tangential issue. It's not a matter of opinion over a disputed aspect of doctrine. This is a teaching that strikes at the very vital of salvation itself. It's a so-called good news that is in fact bad news. And this is why that word, he speaks of different gospel, is literally, the Greek word is heteros, from where we get heterodoxy. If something is orthodox, it is in accord with the truth. But if something is heterodox, it is out of accord with the truth. It is unorthodox. And so the question we want to ask is, what were they teaching so much so that the very essence of the gospel itself was was undermined? Well, I think one of the ways that we could we could summarize it as they were teaching a Christianity and gospel. A Christianity and gospel. Right now, we as the staff here at Cornerstone, which is our tradition on Mondays for our staff meeting to be reading something together, we spend about 30, 40 minutes together reading, reflecting, discussing a particular book together. And right now, we are reading together the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis. And actually, our reading for tomorrow includes letter 25. And in that letter, which is a dialogue of letters between an elder demon by the name of Screwtape, who is training his understudy, Wormwood, in the arts of how to tempt us into sin. And so as you're reading it, you're in the, you're in the person of Screwtape. And you're learning about the dynamics of temptation and the distortions that the evil one and that our flesh embrace regarding the truth of God. In in letter 25, Lewis actually exposes the very kind of heresy, false teaching, that we see here in Galatians chapter 1. Listen to what he says in letter 25. He says, the real trouble about your patient, that is the one in whom they are trying to tempt is that he is living merely Christian. Uh, What we want, if men become Christians at all, is to keep them in a a state of what I would call Christianity and. You know, Christianity and the crisis. Christianity and the new psychology. Christianity and the new order. Christianity and faith healing. Christianity and, and reform. Christianity and vegetarianism. If they must be Christians, let them at least be Christians with a difference, with an and. Substituting for faith itself some fashion that has a Christian coloring to it. Work as best as you can on the horror of them holding on to the same old thing. Now, though 2,000 years removed from the writing of Galatians, C.S. Lewis is talking exactly what the Apostle Paul is speaking to here. And he summarizes it. Because the Galatian teachers, who were likely Jewish teachers, who had come in 
to these new Gentile converts and had said to them, oh, Paul came. Oh, that's wonderful. He preached to you Christ. Great, you're saved. Well, let me tell you the next real deep dimension of this gospel that he might not have shared with you. And that is that you need to keep the Jewish cultural customs. Uh, you, you need to uphold the dietary restrictions. You, you need to be circumcised. You, you need to, in a very real sense, now that you are Christ, you need to uphold all of the Mosaic ceremonial laws. They're smuggling in works. And they're calling it by the same name as gospel. They're smuggling in the idea of practices that are going to be really pleasing to God. That yes, you're saved by Christ. But if you're saved by Christ, the real pleasingness that comes from God is when you keep the laws that have been given to us by Moses. And when we do that... We lose the essence of grace. We begin to fall into Christianity and. Christianity plus. And whenever we fall into a Christianity and or a Christianity plus, what begins to happen is the gospel of grace is undermined. That's why the apostle Paul is, we might even say, fighting mad about it here in Galatians. It's why he would say something that if anyone comes in and distorts the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be condemned. Let him be under perdition. Paul doesn't say that about anything else except here, surrounding the essence of the gospel. It's, it's like the language of Jesus when he says, if anyone leads one of my children away, it's better for him that a millstone be ca caught around his neck and he be thrown into the heart of the sea. Those are not our cross-stitched verses on our walls at home. But Jesus is speaking directly about the very essence of upholding the truth of the gospel. Now, maybe you hear and wonder, why is it so crucial that nothing is added to the gospel? I mean, it's not so bad to uphold the dietary laws. It's not so bad. Many of the customs of the Jewish uh, nation of Israel in the Old Testament are, are, are good things, things that we would even say today are wise? What's the big deal about adding a Jewish custom to the gospel? Well, Martin Luther, borrowing from St. Jerome, an early church father, put it this way in his commentary, and I think it kind of gets at the nub of things, and I think it hits us right where we are at. Jerome said, what actually happens when you add something to the gospel is this is what begins to take place. You set behind that which ought to be in front. And you set in front that which ought to be behind. And I think that is an incredibly wise statement. Let me tell you why. What Jerome is actually saying, what Luther is echoing in his commentary, is he's saying there's an order to the gospel. There's a priority in the preaching of the gospel, in the teaching of the gospel, and in the believing of God's people. There's an order that can't be mixed up. In fact, if you mix up the order or reverse it, you wind up believing a different gospel altogether. Uh, let me give you an example from our membership vows. The first three of our membership vows here at Cornerstone, the very first one says, you are a sinner in the sight of God, and you are justly deserving his displeasure. And without hope, save in his sovereign mercy. The very first one is about sin. And it's about you coming to terms with the truth about yourself. 
that you are a sinner, you are broken, and you are without hope in this world. The second one is about Christ. That he alone is the savior of sinners. And apart from his substitution, his death, burial, and resurrection on your behalf, you would have no hope, but in trusting in him, you are saved eternally through Jesus Christ alone. You know what the third vow is? The third vow is a commitment to follow Christ. It's discipleship. Now that I've acknowledged that I'm a sinner and a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, what shall then we do? How then should we live? As the old Francis Schaeffer question goes, you should live as a disciple of Christ. Now, let's reverse those in priority. Let's start with the commitment to discipleship. That the main thing about Christianity is that you do what it is that Christ has called you to do. What's going to happen if that's your foundation? You lose grace. You make Christianity about what you do rather than what Christ has done. The first two questions are the foundation. is how hopeless you are and how amazing Christ's salvation is. And you're fully accepted in him. Now in light of that foundation, what do you do? I live not to earn merit with Christ or with God, but as an overflow of my acceptance in Christ with God. That's a completely different foundation for the faith. If you begin to set forward what should be behind... And you begin to take what's behind and set it forward. You actually turn the entire gospel on its head. The language here is the language of distortion. You pervert it. You make it something that it's absolutely not. Now here's what's very sad. I believe that if you were to ask most people who are going to be walking on the sidewalks in downtown Franklin for the Main Street Festival today. And you said, what does it mean to be a Christian? They're going to say it means to do good. It means to be, to be kind to people and not to murder someone. And it's going to be a lot of do. And that is not what Christianity is primarily about. It is about what Christ has done for us. It is not about what you're doing for him. Now, is what you're doing for him important? Absolutely it is. But it's not ordered as first. The order of the gospel is that Christ is first in all that he has accomplished. The order of flow is that what you do comes out of that. In fact, discipleship is going to be futile and frustrating and ultimately defeating. If you wake up every morning now going to be a great Christian. And you go to the commands and you're ready to do them all. Rather than going to the commands and realizing first, man, I am without hope when I look at this list. Lord, I've done every single one of these. I've had the anger. I've had the lust. I've had the covetousness. That's not going to change today. There's nothing that I could do. Praise God that Christ has, has, has on my behalf redeemed me and he has paid the penalty for my sins on the cross And now as you look at me, you look at the merit that he has won for me. And I'm clothed in his righteousness. And I know that I'm accepted by you, not by anything that I have done, but by everything that he has done and earned on my behalf. Now, Lord, that you have done that, I want to serve you today. And as I look at this law, it doesn't condemn me. I rejoice because Jesus has fulfilled it for me. But in my rejoicing, I now want to follow it with a heart of grace because of what he's done. Do you feel the difference? Paul says to mix that up is be cursed, is anathema. Eternity hangs in the balance. It's the difference between the gospel 
and condemnation. It's huge, friends. Especially when you spot in your heart that tendency, don't you? I spot it in my heart. This is why every day we have to work through the ordering of the gospel. We've got to go back to make the first things first. We've got to go back to the reality of sin. We've got to go back to the reality of Christ and what it is he's accomplished. Then we've got to turn our attention to followership and our commitment to him. If we start here, we're not going to have all this stuff as a foundation from which to work from in the living of our Christian life. And we're going to turn it into a wretched smelling legalism. And we're going to live our lives plucking daisies, thinking he loves me, he loves me not, based upon how it is that I've done. The Apostle Paul feels that stench. He smells it rising up from the church at Galatia. And he speaks stronger than he ever has before because of the nature of what it is that had taken place. Now, here's how this really this is how this really works naturally. It was, it was a remarkable thing even, even being in Philadelphia for a couple of days this week and, and, and tracing the history of the Great Awakening up to the founding of Princeton University and Princeton Seminary and then the establishment in the 20th century of Westminster Theological Seminary and, and studying one figure by the name of J. Gresham Machen who's the founder of a conservative Presbyterian denomination known as the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and he was on the faculty at Princeton Theological Seminary, one of their bright and shining young star theologians, and he began to smell the stench of addition among the faculty. He began to smell on the board of trustees something of the leaving of the tradition of the gospel. And the way it showed up first was instead of scripture alone as the authority, for what it is we believe. It began to be scripture and other writings. Scripture and human reason. That's how it usually begins. A Jewish teacher comes in and says, yeah, I know the Bible says this, but let me really unpack that for you. And they go far beyond the nature of the Bible and they put a double bind on you. He saw that happening. So much so that years before it actually trickled down into the teaching and changed the course of that seminary, which today is a significantly liberal seminary that has left the essence of the gospel, he, in the early part of the 20th century, saw that that was going to happen and left, taking a number of conservative faculty with him to establish Westminster Theological Seminary so that there would be a continuing witness of the gospel within the Reformed tradition. It doesn't matter what time period we're looking at. You always have to fight for this. Paul's fighting for the souls of the church at Galatia. And he's fighting for the essence of the gospel. And you've got to fight it not merely at the theological, seminary, ecclesiastical, denominational level. You've got to fight it here in your heart. Because the realization is we come from a long line of deserters. It's in our DNA. It's in our DNA going back to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Who when they were looking and listening to the serpent who was telling them a different gospel. They thought, man, that sounds really good. And they ate of the forbidden fruit. And death and destruction began to overtake them. Or Abraham and Sarah as their getting this promise from the Lord and told to believe that they're going to get a son and he doesn't begin to do it within their time scale and they begin to look at the biology of the situation. They begin to think this promised son's not going to happen. You know what God wants us to do. He wants us to take it into our own hands. 
I tell you what, Hagar's young enough. Abraham, why don't you have relations with her so maybe we'll have a child through her? Forsaking the promise that was given to take things into our own hands. Come up with a better plan, better idea, better conception, more creative. Or, or Moses, in Numbers chapter 20, when he's before the rock and God tells him to speak to it and there'll be a water that comes out from the rock that will water the nation of Israel. And instead, you know what he says? He's like, well, that's a great idea, but I think I'll strike it. I think I'll strike it. Because I did that in the past and that's what you told, that's what you told me then. So I'm just gonna do, I'm just gonna do it this way. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do what you told me to do in my way and not your way. And he struck it and he brought a forfeiting, a consequence upon his own heart and life that he was unable to enter the land of Canaan because of the sin that he committed before God's people not obeying the word of God and revealing the word of God to be holy. This is, we, this is our DNA, friends. This is, who, this is who we are. This is why in a teaching ministry of a local congregation, you need to constantly be asking yourself, you need to constantly be, be testing what I'm telling you. What your Sunday school classes are telling you. You need to listen. What is the emphasis of this message? Is the emphasis of this message the emphasis of the text? You need to also be asking, what's absent? What's absent? What is, what is assumed but not said? Because that's often how it begins. That's often how it begins. It's not always what it is that someone says. It's what someone lists unsaid. You know, when these, when these teachers came into Galatia, they didn't come into Galatia going, you know, I know Paul told you about Christ, but it's not about Christ. That's not what they said. They said, oh yeah, that's great. Isn't that an amazing story about Christ? Let me add a little something. Let, let, let me tell you a little more. And then they harped on that and they focused on that. You know what begins to happen in the conditioning of a soul? So for instance, if, if for several weeks from this pulpit, if I were to stand up and, and when we talk about discipleship, if I just talked about what you need to do and didn't talk about what Christ has done, what kind of soul would begin to be formed within this room? A, a soul that would lean on self rather than a soul that would trust in God. And I would be, you know what I'd be telling you? I'd act, if I can speak for self for a minute, I would be telling you biblical things in a reversed order. Emphasizing one thing to the degree of leaving the foundation out. I'd be saying biblical things without it being gospel-centered, gospel-motivated, gospel-driven. You need to listen to the emphases and the absences that are going on. Because here's what the Apostle Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, 3, for I delivered to you, listen to his words, for I delivered to you of first importance what I also received that Christ died for us according to the scriptures. What was first importance for the Apostle Paul? Christ died for us according to the scriptures. I delivered that to you. I didn't just say, oh yeah, Christ died, we believe it, let's move on now. No, every day I'm bringing that before your eyes. Every day I'm unpacking it in a variety of ways. Every day I'm wanting it to sing in the hearts of your people. Why? Because we forget it. And we're going to default towards a distorted gospel. And so he says, I've decided, 1 Corinthians 2, 2, to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. Now when Paul says that, I want you to think. When Paul says, I've decided to know nothing among you 
but Christ and him crucified. Does he mean that every day he was giving an evangelistic gospel preaching message? Not necessarily. It meant that when the apostle Paul was talking about marriage, he brought Christ and him crucified into it. When the apostle Paul was talking about parenting, he brought Christ and him crucified into it. When Paul was talking about sin and the struggle of the snare of sin and not getting out of it, he brought Christ and him crucified into it. In everything that the apostle Paul preached, he always preached and brought into relationship with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if we're preaching, for instance, on lust, a subject that not a one of us have been able to escape sinfully in our lives, I could say, you know what? You ought not lust. Bible says don't lust. Quit it. Stop it. Here's seven ways to stop. Amen. Let's go home. I could, I could do that. And actually, a lot of you would take copious notes. And with great excitement, would go and put a lot of those practices in. And you know what you'd find? You'd probably have a margin of success. And you still couldn't kick it. And you'd fall again and you'd struggle again. And you can either go back and say, I'm going to try it again. Or you can go, I'm a sinner in the need of Christ. Apart from the blood of Christ that's covered me from my sins, I'm never going to see change. I could go back to the gospel and have the gospel motivate for the work of discipleship. That is a fundamentally different thing. What I'm trying to teach us today and to try to sit in for a few minutes together is when we say that we are gospel-centered as a congregation, we don't necessarily mean we are preaching an a altar call every Sunday. What we mean is that in everything that we say, we say Christ and him crucified in relationship to it. We bring, as it were, the gospel into every sphere of existence and life. And that makes the fundamental difference. Because when you begin to look over this long line of leavers that we are, this long line of deserters that we are, here's, here's what you want to build in. You want to build in the fact that we are going to stray. And how are we brought back? How, how can you receive encouragement when you fall? And then how can you receive motivation to continue on only in the gospel? The gospel is the only thing that can do that. Because if you don't have the gospel, you're going to become defeated and want to give up. Or if you're successful, you're going to become prideful and hardened and actually think you're doing it on your own. Neither of which is true. But the gospel makes you humble and strong simultaneously. Only because of what Christ has done. It allows you to have the freedom to pursue Christ without having to be Christ. And to be the savior of your own life. And when you're not seeing that showing up, whether it's in preaching or teaching, there's often an emphasis or an absence of the gospel in relationship to what might be biblical teaching. And thus it's not actually forming a soul that's being motivated and driven by Christ. Let's use an example of what that would look like right here. How does the gospel relate to this? Well, very clearly, the Lord Jesus Christ who it was his meat and drink to do the will of his Father who was in heaven, who had a command and an edict from God to come into this world to save his people from their sins, and he throughout the course of his life was constantly tempted towards other gospels. Was he not in the wilderness by Satan himself? Jesus, you could turn these stones into bread, and you, you, you can call 10,000. You know what? He could. He wasn't tempting him towards something that was false. 
He was tempting him towards something that was out of order from his call in the Lord. He was teaching him to try to seize upon the crown without going to the cross. Something that would have been profoundly tempting to the Lord Jesus Christ, but the Lord Jesus Christ didn't desert. He remained faithful. In the Garden of Gethsemane, did not he experience the same temptation? As he was struggling, asking the Lord that this cup would pass from him, but did he not, in his faithfulness, drink it all the way to the dregs and not desert the Lord? And then on the cross, did he not experience the ultimate desertion that we were supposed to experience? When the whole world, as it were, grew dark and and the sin of the world was placed upon him and the Father turned his face from him. He experienced what we were supposed to experience, the full desertion from the Lord, but he did it on our behalf. Do you see, the Father turned away from Jesus so he could turn towards us. Now what did I just do? I preached to you the gospel. That was the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is why, for those of you who know Christ today, your heart, like it did for the disciples at the end of the Gospel of Luke, burned within you with joy. Because you know that you are not deserted by the one who holds you in his hand and the evil one cannot pluck you out. And you now know through the motivation of that glorious message that you want to become one that never deserts. You want to be a faithful soldier with ultimate allegiance who crosses the finish line with confidence to collapse into the arms of Jesus, knowing that he was actually the one who carried you the whole way anyway. You see, that's the difference of what the Apostle Paul is talking about. Let us not be a people who distort the gospel, who emphasize or leave absent things that need to be in the front, or wrongly focus upon things that really need to be in the back, that are fruits that flow from the gospel. Let us live within the dynamic of what it means to hold it in balance, in the presence of the Lord and focus upon the call of Christ. Let's pray to that end right now. Father in heaven, we would ask you to forgive us for the times in which we have, even in the testimony of being biblical, lost sight of Jesus. That taking and excerpting commands in a way that subverts the promises of grace. And help us, Lord, to be attentive to our own hearts. Help me, help the elders of this local congregation to be attentive to the teaching ministry of this church so that we are faithfully encouraging, strengthening, provoking God's people through this message of the gospel. Father, I'm well aware that only the Holy Spirit can balance and orient and nurture this kind of dynamic. And we will get it wrong. And when we do, we pray that you will align us to the straight edge of the gospel again. And we will, in repentance, turn not towards a different gospel, but turn back to the gospel that we were so tempted to leave. Lord, I don't know about Robert Robinson. I don't know, even as I pray, whether he's in your presence right now. But we do know that the words that he wrote so many years ago are words that resonate in the reality of our souls right now. We ask that you would bind us to grace like a fetter. And ravish us with your love. Until we see you face to face. Hold on to us. Even when we can't hold on to you in the way we should. We ask this in Jesus name. Amen.